לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Hello and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malaman, Highland Park, New Jersey, at the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shemet. Joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Salmachek, the Day School of Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Komanowski, on Sheikh Chesed in New York City. We're recording this. Today is the 90th day of the war. We are thinking and praying for the release of the hostages. They're first and foremost, our minds are praying for the safety of our uh, IDF soldiers, and um, it, thinking about them and reading the, the Parsha. I, I, before starting, just want to say thank you to all of the people that watch us and listen to us and make us part of their routine in their Torah study. It means a tremendous amount to us. We're, we're, we're very, very honored by that. And we're starting a new book, Shmot. So it's a milestone now to begin a new book, uh, just just before we get into things that we are going to talk about, um, this book is a new story. I, I, I was I'm trying to think of what's a good metaphor. You have you know it's a it's a it's an entirely new phase, a new movement in the symphony. It's a new set of themes. Um, and at the beginning of this uh, book, you you get that sense. I, I'm just gonna pitch this to both of you and ask you to give me the 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 note that it's starting on and and what do you think is going on what what is it trying to do at the beginning what's the story that it's trying to tell us uh just in the first few few verses what are some of the transitions that are taking place what are, what do we know about this people and what do we know about how it becomes and you know if you're introducing the parsha to your shul or to your class What's the, you know, what, what are you going to say? So I'm going to start with you, Rabbi Jeremy Kamanowski. What's, what's, what's the moment of, what's going on here? Transition you know, moment. If, 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 if Breshit was this story about revered ancient figures whose lives were really quite different from the audience um, of, the to- of the rest of the Torah itself, we somewhat leave that story behind, you know, the new king who did not know Joseph. Maybe it's not just the king of Egypt who didn't know. It's a, it's perhaps a statement also of how much space there is between the, the patriarchal, matriarchal narratives and then the ongoing life of the people. Now, the that first book may be established that we have a homeland, that we belong in Canaan, that that's the place where we were we were born, but... We are now a people with a with a much longer history. Um, you know, historians will tell us that that many of the Bible's core texts came into their final form under the pressures of invasions from Assyria and Babylonia. People are living in exile, and so the beginning of Genesis is, if if you'll sort of forgive a bit of an anachronism, it's a lot more realistic to what it is to be a Jew. 
to live in some other empire, to feel vulnerable under some other empire, to have a sense that we belong somewhere else, but to really have to live under pressure, often o- oppression, and yeah. to figure out how we're going to remain remain a Jew, remain an Israelite in ancient times or a Jew in subsequent times under that kind of pressure. Barry, what are your thoughts as the book begins? So <clears throat> I like uh, Ibn Ezra's first comment. So he suggests that it begins with Shmot. These are the names because it wants to connect with the end of Breshit, which took note that Joseph lived to see his grandchildren and great-grandchildren, the third and fourth generation. And the opening lines of Shmot summarize that last couple chapters of Breshit from a narrative point of view and moves the story suddenly forward on a national level. And then Ibn Ezra goes into a grammatical discussion of the word Ela, which I think is I find very rich. Um, it need not concern us here, but one of the things I like to observe is that Shmot is kind of anchored in the end of Breshit. And so we're led to see it as a continuation of the story in Breshit, as Jeremy mentioned, but it also obfuscates for us that Shmot is its own book, and we hardly ever look at it as a book. The end of the book is going to be the erection of the Mishkan, which on a mythic level is quite profound because the Mishkan stands for the temple that was destroyed by the time the book came into its own. Mm. And it kind of pushes us in a sense, but also leads us astray because it takes our eye off the ball. So, uh, and so I'm, I'm, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about this, that verse, verse six, um, Vayamot Yosef Joseph and his brothers die, and the, all that entire generation. Then, um, and that there is this, that verse signifies a demarcation, a generational divide. Uh, then the question then is, to what extent the next generation has living memory of that previous generation, and to what extent they're they're their own people, and to what extent their their new story is being defined, and and how how do they uh, answer the questions, the basic questions of their lives? Who are we? Without so without, I think yeah. there's an interesting linguistic phenomenon here because in the very first verse we have B'nai Israel who are literally the children of Yaakov Avinu, Jacob yeah. the patriarch, and in the verse that you read B'nai Israel is now a nation, that the literal sons of Israel has now become this mighty nation, which we'll learn later in the book is six hundred thousand fighting men, and that happens all very quickly in a few verses. In the context of the narrative, in a few generations, we go from a few, 70, to 600,000 fighting okay. men. Yeah, okay. So so the, there is that moment where, where there's the recognition of this, this large people that's no longer a family, no longer a clan, but but a nation. Hine Am B'nai Israel, verse uh, 9 and then Pharaoh decides, Hava nitchakmalo, let's wisen up, pen your bed, that lest they increase. lest there be a war, they will they will add to our enemies. 
Um, so, Vayasimu alav sarim isim, I love the play on words, uh, and they, they, they are oppressed. But then verse 12, this is, it's a remarkable response to oppression, I guess. It's, you know, the taxes get heavier. The the level of oppression gets heavier. They're not yet um, brutalized. And they simply, uh, they reproduce. And well, they reproduce. We, we have to remember here, I think that when Pharaoh says, he's indicating that the position of the Israelites is somewhat precarious. Because there's no reason why, if things are going well for them, and you know they've been guests in Egypt for a few generations now, that they would not continue to flourish and identify themselves with Egypt. They've had opportunities, I would think, to go back to Canaan, which they have not availed themselves of. The last time they went was when Jacob died. They went to bury him. And they're not going to go again until Joshua. And what I think that we're led to consider is that Pharaoh's plan only works if the people are already oppressed, because otherwise you might think their population increase would be good for Egypt. What's so... Oh, it no. certainly would be, by the way. Uh, just um, yesterday, the Paul Krugman article in the New York Times uh, op-ed page is, you know, the famous uh, uh, economist who also writes a newspaper column, was about the economics of greed and slavery in the American South is very difficult for Americans to read this story without having at least some points of contact with, with the story of African slavery in the Western hemisphere because of how deeply, you know, black people absorbed this biblical story and, and told their story through it. Um, you know, if they were flourishing, uh, it, it doesn't really make a ton of sense. It only makes sense if they're already oppressed and Pharaoh is extracting labor from available, you know, extracting expensive, you're saying cheap labor, you know, for very valuable land. So is is their um, reproduction a survival strategy? Uh, is it a rebellion strategy? Is it uh, an affirmation of life strategy? And, and you know, and, and, the, and the other thing about that, in, in light of all of those questions, is Pharaoh... If you are a slaveholder, and this is the Krugman article, and he wrote this, uh, he, he referenced this, which what I know about economics is nothing, but he referenced this evidently very influential paper about slavery and serfdom from the 1970s, in, in which he said, you know, you, you have to have certain conditions. If land is plentiful and you need workers, then slavery is good, um, and and otherwise it's not. And Pharaoh says there are too damn many of them, but only if there are a lot of them does slavery make economic sense. Uh, so it makes it is very confusing, or at least maybe there's a little bit of a plot hole um, to to imagine why he thinks there are too many uh, Israelites because there are so many of them that they might leave the land. Um, so is the what is the strategy? I would say that at one level on a narrative or human level, reproduction is the life affirmation, right? You you want to kill us, you want us to, to disappear, we're gonna, we're not gonna disappear. Uh, we're gonna flourish and 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 affirm, you want us to die, we're, we're gonna live. 
But again, the, the point of the economics of slavery would assume that he doesn't want them to die. He wants them to live and work. Right. So on a theological note, I think we would say the massive increase of the people is the hidden hand of God. So, and this is capsulized in the famous comment of Rashi, where Pen Yerba, the Pharaoh is concerned lest they increase, and God says, Cain Yerba, I'll make sure they certainly increase. And one of the interesting features of Shmot is that God first appears at the end of chapter one in reference to the midwives who will not kill the Israelite boys. They are known as fearers of God. But I think already in the, the words that suggest the massive increase of the population, we're to see God's hand. So I just go back to, to the, the, um, the strategy of coping here. Um, is, is reproduction here, the life affirmation, which I'm picking up from what Jeremy said, is they're, they're expressing hope here. By, by reproducing in, in large numbers, they're saying... Look, we can we can withstand this. We can survive this, and not only that, but we're going to affirm in our reproductive lives uh, the value of family versus the 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 structures of power that exist here. And let's you know, on the granular level, it's you have an Egyptian pharaoh who is the the head of the entire nation, and and there really isn't a sense of the Egyptian family. But what you have at the beginning here, from uh, the beginning of Shemot, and really through the, the beginning of Breshit, the idea of the family. So here with uh, their reproduction and their vast reproduction, they are signaling, we're going to be who we are. You're not going to destroy us, A. We're going to affirm uh, the future by bringing in children. That may be too a modern uh, reading of it, but we're going to cope by, by having families. Uh, and we're going to affirm this until the destructive uh, policies, and we could say they're proto-genocidal policies, where Pharaoh says, I can't deal with this. We have to destroy their structures. We have to kill their children, kill their male children. I'm going to go right down to the end of the first chapter, which is that Pharaoh, Pharaoh commands the entire people saying, Kol haben hayilod. Uh, every male child born, throw into the Nile, and every daughter, every female child, you should uh, keep alive. That That's a genocidal policy, uh, if there ever was one. Is he referring only to Hebrew children? Is he referring to Egyptian children as well? That may be a good question for the commentators. It seems to me on the most you know, plain level that that is referring to Hebrews, Hebrew children. That's, of course, how the next story is going to unfold. Um, and and it makes it makes it be, because I mean we've talked about this in the past uh, because of of the differentiation of gender. It really apparently means you know genocidal if there ever was one because you're going to kill the males and we're going to take the females for sexual slavery. And thus, they're not going to have Hebrew children. They're going to have Egyptian, have Egyptian children. children. And and what they're going to do basically is is literally crush the family structure. And I think you know that that may be either the text or the subtext here, which is we are we are engaged in enslavement, which has to on one level um, be crushing to the whole social structure. I, I'm I'm always re recalling um, this note uh, from. 
Rabbi Eliezer Diamond, our colleague and friend, who who said, you know, the when when the redemption comes, the first thing that they do is they get back together in families, and and that that idea I think is 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 here. It's present here. There there's the Egyptian effort to destroy family, to crush the structure, the unifying structure, and the and the organizing principle of Israelite culture, which is the family versus the organizing principle of Egyptian culture, which is the pharaoh and the monarchy and the kingdom and subjects and slavery and power, you know, if if you will. Well, that, that enables us to move nicely into the next story, okay, which is, so so here we have we have Moses, and of course we know that Moses is hid for three months, and the daughter of Pharaoh who finds him, and and all of that. By the way, the, the daughter the daughter of Pharaoh who finds him, that is a great piece of evidence for the subversiveness of your reading just now. If, if the Egyptians want to crush the Israelites and destroy their families and and disrupt them from what we would call you know normal like. The, the physical, the drive, the, the 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 drive to reproduce, to have children, to make life go on. He wants to kill them. It is from within his own house that the mercy is of his daughter exemplifies. Fascinating. It's a, it's a great reading. A great reading. So so here you get the 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 family spirit, and here you know we can we can interpret about the daughter affair that that here's a woman who uh, I guess she's not married. I guess. She doesn't have any of her own children. She adopts this child. She becomes, you know, uh, um, a, a a mother on her own. Um, and and by the way, she she will have to eventually give up this child. Uh, uh, you know, one doesn't know about the relationship that she has with this child when the child grows up. Uh, and I think there's there's lots of uh, discussion to be had about about the the. The genuine kindness of this woman, unnamed, um, around uh, around which the entire story hinges. The entire story of Israel hinges on uh, the, an act of kindness, an act of, of of humanity, basically. Okay. So what I would add is that Pharaoh's daughter responds to the crying baby, and that's what engenders her compassion. Yeah. For her mercy, but, and but that it, underscores the lack of humanity in Pharaoh, who never hears the cry of anyone. Indeed, and I think perhaps that provides the the countertext to the first story of Moses when he kills the Egyptian, because the Egyptian also doesn't hear the cry of the man he's beating to death. So let's go into that uh, closely. Um, she responds there's humanity in her um and we'll, we'll pick it up with verse 10 in chapter 2 vaigdal hayeled um i'm sorry uh, he grows up okay and that and, and then she calls him moses then verse 11 i'm sorry vayi bayamim ahem vaigdal moshe i i i i did a homoyo teluton i read vaigdal instead of vaigdal hayeled instead of vaigdal moshe uh look it up <laughs> He grows okay, he grows up. What is the narrator trying to tell us here? So I'll answer. The narrator is trying to say that that in this person there is this identity crisis. That Moses 
knows of himself in one way as a you know a prince or royalty, but he's going to his brothers. He sees their anguish, their suffering. And so uh, empathy is kindled or or feeling. He sees an Egyptian. So I want to say between the word sivlotam, suffering, and the word vayar, he sees there's a transition in Moses. My question then, is, is this the point where Moses ceases to be an Egyptian and becomes something other? Or is he still Egyptian here? In other words, in what frame of the movie does Moses cease being an Egyptian? Is it here, or is it in a couple of frames where it says he sees the Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, from his brothers? So now, it's yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's a little more complicated than that because yeah. one would like to think that this is the end of Moses the Egyptian because he defends the Israelite against the Egyptian. But when he goes to Midian, fleeing from Pharaoh, he's seen to be an Egyptian. So he can't quite give up that Egyptian identity yet. And it leads to the question, then, when does that actually happen? And it may not actually take place either at the burning bush, perhaps, or until he comes back into Egypt as Moshe, his own person, no longer the son of Bathparo, the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. Or, or maybe it never happens, which is to say that we, we've spoken in the past, in previous years, about how um, Moshe can do things as a leader because he is both one of and not one of the people. He stands at some at some remove from them. Uh, he hasn't had all their experiences, and that maybe permits certain kinds of leadership. But I, I want to just mention... It's a little bit of a different, a difficult passage, so I'm not a thousand percent sure I have it right. But Ibn Ezra's comment on this passage seems to um, turn on the, the two uses of the word uh, his brothers. So, Ibn Ezra reads Abraham Ibn Ezra, this Bible commentator of the of the uh, 12th century in Spain and abroad. He actually traveled around a lot. He was exiled, he was very poor, um, he had bad, bad luck in business, and he had to, to travel around, and in fact died in England, of all crazy places. Um, so on the, after the days, Moses grew up, and he went out to his brothers, not to see their suffering, even as it says, it means he went out to see his brother Egyptians and see how the work was going. So that the first Echav, is not not you know it's not like a, a poetic thing to see how how his fellow Jews were suffering, it's it's just to see like we're doing a lot of building here we're trying to build these big gigantic uh, we're trying to build the pyramids how how's it going? Vayar ish. So who's is he seeing though? Vayar are you saying that the first in you're looking at verse eleven? So vayar vayetze elechav he goes to his brother his brother Egyptians. Yes, that's that is what. Then we would understand Sivlotam more as a burden than as than suffering. There, so the the Egyptians suffering? Well, no, they're a burden. Oh. In other words, if they're okay. working, interesting. It's interesting. very hard work. Exactly. He wants to see how the work is going. They had they had a task. They had to build some pyramids. They've they've in, in they've got the this you know indentured labor over here. 
But the, the first part, of the, the first clause is he goes out to see his brother Egyptians and see how the work is going. Then the second clause goes like this: Vayar ish mitzri makat ish ivri me echav. If I, if I understand the, the comment correctly, what I think it means is th then he goes and sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and then, the, the as it were, the omniscient narrator or the divine narrator clues us in and says, and that's his real brother. His, uh -huh. his, real, his real brothers. And so if that's the case, I mean, it, it could mean ish mitri me'echav maka ish ivri, one of his brother Egyptians beating an Israelite, or it could be, Ibn Ezra's comment could mean that that the Egyptian is beating one of the Egyptians who is his real family, his real clan, his real kin. In which case, this verse in the two uses of the word echav, his brethren, has really done something spectacular. So, so, which is to give the divided consciousness of Moshe, who, who are his real brothers? In some ways it's the Egyptians, and in some ways it's the Hebrews. So this leads me to to uh, a homiletical interpretation of the next verse, which is, Vayifen ko vacho, he looks this way and that way, which, you know, uh, the shot is he's he's in the scene and he's looking around. But my homiletical reading is he's looking to which side he belongs. Vayifen ko vacho, as you've described it, he's looking to his Egyptian fraternity, and he's looking to his new Israelite fraternity. He's looking to one identity. He's looking to another identity. And it's it's precisely at that moment that he has to make a decision. I guess it's, which side am I on or who am I? Uh, he sees that there's no one in front of him. There's no one around. Um, but but it's a moment of real crisis that, that may be the... the, the, the the moment of the kindling of his own identity. Bayarki ain ish, he sees that there's no one around, but he also sees that he is now a tabula rasa. He is he has to construct his own identity. And then Vayachetamitri, that his first for first uh, act of identity is violence. He hits the Egyptian. The Egyptian is not identified as Echav. Is not identified as his brother, but the Egyptian is identified simply as the victim, because the he's the aggressor. He he smites the aggressor, and we are adding he smites the aggressor to defend his brother, and that creates his identity. You know the the uh, I'm really I'm I'm grooving on the richness of this reading because of the presence in the previous sentence not only of two uses of the word echav and the ambiguity that it might be who is your real who is your really your your kinsfolk but the two uses of the word ish 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 mitzri maket ish ivri there's two ishim and then vayifan ein ish and now there is no longer a person now so what does it mean that that it, it could mean we could just like have some fun with this and say it could mean that moshe's identity Having been stripped of either his Egyptianness or his Hebrewness, is is a non-ish that he's he's poisoned between and has to pick. It could mean you know something like as the the the, the phrase from Pirkei Avot, the Makom Sha'en Ish Hishtadeli Yot Ish, where there is where there is no where no one's going to stand up and be a man. You got to stand up and be a man. Moshe at some level 
uh, is faced with this existential crisis, no one else is doing that. He is going to have to stand up and be the hero. And so he's, he's called upon it. But the, the rhythmic quality of echav, echav, ish, ish, ish uh, is, is really quite, um, it sounds great. Like the music of this text is great. Indeed, indeed. So, okay, so then take it one step further, which is Vayitmeneo Bachol, means he buried him in the sand. And, and uh, you know, the technicality here is that he smites this Egyptian, probably not with the intent of killing him, although he kills him. Uh, and, and having killed him, he is in trouble. He knows he's in trouble, uh, and he buries him in the sand. And I, 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 I'm trying to imagine what goes through Moses' mind, you know, at the end of the day here, and what, what, how he makes a decision to go out the next day. It seems to me very <laughs> odd that he doesn't run away already, and that, and that he thinks that this is not going to be discovered. Um, and why? Well, the is last, that- the last thing that goes, the last thing that goes to Moshe's mind. The last thing that goes to the Egyptians is probably a rock. Okay, you know, the the the, the, uh, the. I mean, I'm just thinking about like what what is the what is the 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 narrative? What are the facts of the narrative here? Because like to beat somebody to death is well, he didn't have you know he didn't have a a Mac ten here. Uh, the the thing that takes a hand to hand combat to beat somebody to death, I mean, I've watched enough movies. Uh, it's like a thing. <laughs> it's uncontrolled violence above the neck, and and so, is it an accident? Did he did he push him and he happened to fall on his head on a rock? Hey, probably no. He probably picked up a rock. You know, and, I was going to say, and, it, it's like last year there was this this terrible incident in the football game where uh, a a. Uh, the, a player was tackled or was hit right on his chest. Yeah, went into yeah. cardiac arrest. You know, totally by accident, and miraculously survived it. You know, so he may have struck him in the chest just at that moment, that that fractional moment. You know, to result in yeah, cardiac. I, I think you're being too nice here, okay. and I, I think that the intent was to kill the Egyptian. And I'd be curious to know a few things. First of all, what were the burial customs for average Egyptians? Yeah. Right. The virtue of hiding him in the sand is that the sand itself can cover up the scene. Right. If it's done properly, you don't know what happened there. Whatever blood there may have been can easily be covered by the sand. But the question is, so the guy doesn't come home. That must raise some eyebrows. Yeah. Unless there's some kind of normal circumstance where people go out to work, even Egyptians, in this kind of society, and they don't always come home. All right. So I, the- I think, by the way, just uh, as long as we're on this, I think that um, I think that Demar Hamlin is still on the Buffalo Bills. I think he, I think he, uh, he's. I know he was on the team at some point this year, um, and and I believe he's still on the team. So, like, that's a recovery for sure. All right. So quickly, we have, without the, we have a couple of minutes left. So. The, he goes out the next day. Two people, two Hebrews are fighting. Moses says to the guilty one, "Why are you beating up your companion?" And then Jeremy, me, samcha, leish. Okay, 
This is what they say to Moses. Who made you a man? Sar v'shofet aleinu. Officer and judge on us. Are you going to kill us? Like you said, like you killed the Egyptian. And Moses reacts and says, ah, he doesn't, he, he, it's like, there's no answer to that. I, it's, I guess, I guess they know about this. Well, so, but again, we often, we've read this story so many times, we never play it through. So Moses is going to leave. And what's the Rashad going to do? Yeah. Well, the, the, the Midrash on this is that the two guys are, Datan Abiram, um, practicing, who, who are going to remain thorns in Moses' side. They're, they're going to be the guys who, uh, you know, violate the rules about not collecting mana on Shabbat. They're going to be the guys who are going to be part of the Korach rebellion. So, so, like, as we talked about, what's the story and how does this all play through Israelite, you know, consciousness? Um, they're going to be enslaved. And then they're going to go free, and they're still going to be their cantankerous, difficult selves. Well, and this leads to the first exile that Moses Moses goes to exile. Vayvrach Moshe, mipnei Pharaoh, he he leaves, and and uh, this um, will will un, unleash a whole cascade of events in his life um, that deal with both discovery and kindness and compassion and also um, uh, the great moment of revelation uh, uh, in the bush that was not consumed, this this fire, this all-consuming fire that, that he has to take note of. That, well, non-consuming fire, actually. Non-consuming fire. Consuming fire, unconsumable plant. Yes, we are the plant that cannot be scorched. I mean, this is this is part of the story, you know. I mean, this is at at some level, this is why this story is just so constitutive of what it is to be a member of this people. We all the way back it didn't start in 1935. Yeah, you know, we have a long history of suffering at the hands of tyrants, Nebuchadnezzar and and Pharaoh and on through. Vespasian and Hadrian and everybody else and uh, and who our self-consciousness is is pen your bet, can your bet. Our, our self-consciousness is, you know, you will try to trample us. We're going to hang in there. And so Moses is exile and Moses is standing up for the apparently, you know, defenseless. Um, and like you said so beautifully just then, you know, a journey of, that is going to be both flight, but also discovery and or reorientation towards what the point of his life is. Like, this this story is really, you know, and and the burning bush story, which we didn't even talk about, yeah. is so awesome. It's so awesome in this parasha, because Moses doesn't want to rise to the occasion, or at least he's he's ambivalent, he's fighting with himself so he doesn't have to rise, and God says this great line, me some pele adam who gave you a mouth. Like now, you, you gotta go. You, you have some talent, so go use them. And God tells him to go use it, and um, and that's how the book begins. We're at the beginning of of this great journey and a great uh, drama. It. I, I'm just as we conclude here. I'm just thinking it's so different. It's so different. Of course, you know, ah, uh, duh. It's different from from the stories of siblings and families that that 
shape us. And and I guess I'm kind of looking for for things to hold on to, especially in a in a complicated time that we're uh, living through. A very um, transforming moment is a Jewish people, and I I think there are plenty of themes here to to latch on to in terms of who are we, what are we to become, uh, what kind of people are we to become, and and what what is our vision? What um, and how how does how do these uh, the, these formative moments really shape who we are uh, through suffering and through coping mechanisms. Um, and one coping mechanism is to thrive, to continue to thrive, to continue to be a thriving people despite um, the adversity of of the present moment that we're in. And uh, uh, that would be my my my, my best shot. Uh, it's a good shot. You you should be able to go ahead. You shot. should be a synagogue rabbi. I'm going to give it a shot this week. Okay. In the meantime, we are uh, we're going to thank you for for watching, for listening. We're praying very, very hard for the hostages and for our fellow Jews everywhere, and uh, we are grateful for the gift of Torah to give us comfort during complicated times. And we're grateful for you, to you, for watching. And I want to say, see you next week on the next edition of Parsha Talk. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.